paid you have i been time. paid yes no no no. have you been paid you will be paid will. so who cares who cares whether it gets well. broadcast as long as the green keeps rolling in i'm green. Maltesers, the, 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 the maltesers keep the rolling into your mouth <laughs> the malteser money You're eating maltesers at this time of day so you should sure do is. Is put the maltesers on a table and then suck them Along into your mouth. That that's what you should try and do. Oh, that'll improve that your you wind me. power. Oh yeah, can you do can you can you do the um I used to be able to. <laughs> Might have destroyed Keep it my... suspended. Right, hold on, shall I do it? Let's see if I can do it. Right. One Malteser. Watch this. This is this has gotta go out. This has gotta go out. He's gonna he's gonna choke. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's awesome. Do that with a rollo. <laughs> you can't, the two chinch, or come a, on. Or a, or a cricket ball. <laughs> <laughs> I'm running out of breath, I'm running out of breath. Ah. <laughs> what was the heaviest confectionery that you could actually get off your lips? That, that's a, that's a, let's, let's do a pod on that. I think it's just a Maltese. And after eight mint, and after eight mint surely weighs more than a Maltese, doesn't it? But because of the surface area, you might be able to get that off the ground. Like a hovercraft after eight minutes. What are we talking about? What are we doing? This is, this is bad. This the is podcast bad. Where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, who in no discernible way is anything like Don Goodman. Rory Smith, <laughs> who has played for the same local team as Don Goodman, but that really is as far as it goes. And Andy Hinchcliffe, who has actually been confused for Don Goodman. I quote from, from a... What? Twitter shade merchant during Sky Sports coverage of Burnley against Spurs from Monday night. This is the quote. Don Goodman is shocking. Let Burnley's challenges go all evening, then has a go about R1. How, wait a minute. I don't even know on which level to reply to this. Actually criticising what I was saying because... But I get hit. Wait a minute. Are they only saying... Are they only being nasty because they think it's Don saying it? If they found out it was me saying it, do you think they'd have more appreciation of it? Well, it's Stephen, now, over to our social it, media correspondent. Would you like mm. to, to, to reveal to Chinch what was happening la- uh, well, last night for where we are but on Monday night? It was, it was brought to my attention on the way back from Turf Moor on Monday uh, that uh, you had upset the Tottenham fans, Chinch. So by much. speaking the truth. Yes, it, it appears that, that they, they feel that you hate them more than all other clubs, where, where actually, as we've, as we've discussed on many occasions over the course of more than 200, 200 episodes, you hate all football teams equally. Yeah, I don't hate anybody. I'm a lover, not a hater. But, but a te- wait a minute, a team plays pretty badly. I say this team's playing pretty badly. Whoa, you can't say that. Again, what is the point? What is the point? Because, and I did say some nice things about some people. I said Harry Kane, very nice header off the line. Well done, Harry. Great goal, Son, tremendous header. So I did say some nice stuff, but they just ignore that. And just when I slag off their team, they have a go at me. Pathetic. Chinch, it sounds a little bit like the correspondent there thinks that the job of the co-commentator is also to be the referee. <laughs> oh, I see. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so Did yeah. they think that you were Don yeah. Goodman shuttling between, with the sort of fitness that only Don Goodman could manage, an, an ex-Collingham cult? Uh, shuttling between the commentary gantry and the middle of the pitch to, <laughs> Presumably, to, to wave yeah. away Burnley fouls. But I, I, the, the confu- what I'm most confused about is how they, unless they, clearly they didn't see the caption that says your commentary team is Rob Hawthorne and Andy Goodman. I don't know how, I don't know how, again, our voices aren't that similar, I would say. And the way we do the job is pretty different, I would <laughs> think. 
It, it, it should be stressed, by the way, Chinch, that it was, it was once upon a time Tottenham midfielder Ryan Mason who started this Twitter pile on last night with his comment that CoCom's on Sky, pretty anti-Spurs tonight, clean sheet and away win at Burnley is a good result. He doesn't mention there, though, how it took them 77 minutes to have a shot on target. And also, he <laughs> didn't mention at the end of it where I said this is a huge result for Tottenham. Not, not a great performance, not because of the scoreline, because after the, the West Ham game, this is a huge... So again, they just, again, they just cherry-pick what they want. But Ryan, that's poor. You know, fans maybe, but he's played the game as well. And if he's telling me that Tottenham played... No one I spoke to after that game said Tottenham played. But they didn't... They did get out of jail a little bit. They did, because they weren't good enough. Well, you were there, Steve, as well, weren't you? Yeah, I they thought they, were, were... they weren't very good. And my job is to say they weren't very good, because that's Chinch, what I saw. It was a good result, but a fortunate result. Yes. And I think your assessment of the game was Thank absolutely you. spot on. So Thank I'm glad you. we've completely dealt with that in a way that will completely satisfy all Spurs fans. The food is what Rory insists is not his breakfast meal. Not my breakfast. Maltesers, but not just Maltesers, suspended beautifully, just a centimetre above his mouth. <laughs> by the way, of very, very controlled blowing. That's not how I normally eat Maltesers. I normally eat Maltesers by the fistful without <laughs> chewing like a duck. Uh, Chinch, football, what is it today? Do you know what we're talking about? Um... It's something that could be quite pertinent to this podcast. It's about rebuilding. <laughs> it is. We are talking about rebuilds. Whether a club has the foresight to realise that one is needed and acts proactively, or on the other hand, if a club is called Barcelona in 2020. Are rebuilds unavoidable? How do they work? Can you do them without money? And do you need a visionary, stable manager to undertake them? That is all uh, to come on the programme. You can get in touch. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and of course, our YouTube channel as well. We start with Josh Hansen, who, remember, contributed last week on the offside issue, which in turn led to a now trademark VAR rant from Stephen. Josh wanted to suggest, you'll remember, a 45-second rule to make sure that only clear and obvious offsides were overturned after the Sadio Mane goal, Rory's position, or not goal, Stephen's position, in the Merseyside derby. Hello again, one and all, says Josh. Not sure if I have the right of reply, but I have a couple of remarks after Steve's response to my previous email. No bitterness, honest. I wasn't suggesting the technology or indeed the application of the rule was incorrect by VAR. I'm saying that a time limit would build in the grey area, which, as you mentioned yourself, would help the game from a spectator's standpoint, which is vital. The game does come before the rules. If it's boring and stop-start, no one will watch it. Also, not to be picky, but I think the phrase clear and obvious would apply to offside in the context of a 45-second time limit. I know it doesn't at the moment. If VAR doesn't think it's offside within 45 seconds, then it isn't a clear and obvious error slash offside, and the on-field decision stands. I've rattled this off pretty quickly because my delight at being read out on my favourite football podcast was short-lived. Don't hate me from Josh, who's still in South London. That's a really good point, you know, that Steve obviously is technically correct. Steve, the ultimate technocrat, is, is absolutely technically correct that, that clear and obvious doesn't apply to offside. And he's also correct that I think people have accidentally kind of conflated the two things. So there is an assumption that if it's not clear and obvious, obvious offside, it shouldn't be being looked at. But you can make a decent case that although, yeah, like pregnant, you're either pregnant or not pregnant, you're either offside or you're onside there's no he's quite offside no almost offside you can make a case that in terms of reviewing it a similar rule to to is look is this a is this a massive rick would actually be quite helpful that which would catch say if i think of other offsides i've seen recently there was one this weekend oh was it salah against sheffield united that you could see first first or second glance you look at it it's still quite tight but you still look at it and think right that yep that feels offside Mane in the derby 
definitely not offside, just a goal. So I think that there is an argument that you could... You can, I think you need to acknowledge that there can be grey areas, but the crucial point is the game comes before the rules. I'm, I'm all in favour of the grey area. That was not what I, the point I was trying to make last week with Josh. I, I don't think the time, limit, the time limit thing works as how you build that grey area in because you are then relying on the speed with which the operative in the VAR booth can get you the, the evidence one way or another. And are we going to really end up in a situation where you are making a decision based on 45 seconds when you could have had greater clarity five seconds later? That, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I think actually building in a grey area or that on-field call that we discussed would be a much more sensible way of doing it. Because as, as Chinch will appreciate, the, the, the technical brilliance of the people that work on our live television outputs not just here, all over the world, in terms of turning around replays so that those watching at home get them almost instantaneously, is a real art. It's a craft. And what you are asking is a small group of people in a booth near Heathrow Airport to be able to operate as quickly as people that have been trained to do that job for a long time. If time limits were to be a thing, then you're talking quite some way down the road once those people who operate the operate the technology are able to do it quickly enough for that to be a factor but is there a case that it might add another layer of entertainment to the game if before a match you not only had to kind of compare and contrast the team's relative strengths but you were sort of like this today it's of course david coot in the var booth he's got a personal best of a footage retrieval of not of 17.3 seconds but the last couple of weeks it's been down at 25 28 he's struggling there's, ch- there's chances for him to be dropped and you've got you, I don't know, it just feels like David Coote suddenly might have to perform under real pressure, get a camera in the VAR room. You get a Coote's giant scrambling. countdown clock as well, not countdown. <laughs> <laughs> you could, but you, can have, you can have David Coote, who will then be assisted by Jim, who is a plumber, Monday to Friday, but an EVS operator on Saturdays and Sundays. <laughs> I, I knew that Mr. Claxon Andy Hinchcliffe would, <laughs> would be all in favour of the massive countdown clock. But I have to agree with Stick, 45 seconds seems a long time when you're watching a game, but... It isn't. It isn't. That that is that is asking people to work incredibly quickly when it might be fine margin. But they're saying they can measure this exactly. So if it takes fifty seconds and it's right, and by, by their by their judgment it's right, surely, surely it's worth doing that. But yeah, you can't wait. You're going to stand someone with a with a rifle to his head saying, <laughs> "You need to you need to do this in forty five seconds, or I'm going to blow your head off." I th- you know what I mean? It's just getting ridiculous. You can't put them under that type of pressure. Again, conspiracy theories based on the fact that, uh, well, I understand that Jim, who is the plumber Monday to Friday at work in the EVS operations at Stockley Park this weekend, I understand that he actually might be a Liverpool fan. So he's mm. going to, oh, he's mm. going to fuddle around when it's, oh, you know, when it's a Manchester United goal or not. Goal. Oh, no, I can't. And, Jim's uh, dropped the tape. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jim's all fingers and thumbs. Oh, it's a sticky joystick. <laughs> at what point as well, do you like with, with, with Red You'd have to question why it's just a joystick. Oh, come on. It's an exciting game. At what point with red cards do you go, oh, sorry, within 45 seconds, I couldn't get the shot of the defender's knee shattering from the stud-high <laughs> challenge. So play on, no yeah. red card. I've only got a wide angle. I'm really sorry, David Coote. Uh, just as a coda to the Merseyside offside debate, how about this from Rob Jones? Hi, all. Long-time listener, first-time emailed. Love the show and look forward to hearing your considered thoughts on offsides and VAR. Considered thoughts and an idea that I've had on how to make marginal decisions seem less unfair says Rob. 
if so, Offside, and I, I genuinely have not heard this one yet, if Offside was only judged on any part of the body used to touch the ball after the offside call, then it's actually checking for an advantage gained by the attacker. So, as Sadio Mane didn't at any point use his upper arm to influence play in the last goal of the Merseyside derby, uh, goal, he says, without any sort of uh, inverted commas, he would have been onside. For headers, a few yards out, you judge from the head, not a stray foot. Uh, that is yeah, that's not that's not a dreadful idea it's not completely without merit but I guess the difficulty is say with that that say with the header how do you gauge whether his launch the player's launching position has been affected by where their feet are which is obviously you use your feet to jump that's what it's how it's just how jumping works <laughs> the player the, is a complete attacking tool isn't he you then say, well, actually, player, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Some players more tools than others. But again, you can't break it down back. and say, right, we've got to then yeah, chop yeah. the body up into all these different... That, oh, my goodness. No, I think I, I, can see, I, can see, I can see where he's coming from. I know what he means. And I think it's not, it's not a kind of risible idea. But I th- it's probably more complicated in the, um, in the execution than it is in the theory. Yeah, logically sound, but logistically very difficult. Yeah. I, I, do, I, I quite like the idea of it being judged on the feet because then you'd get attackers effectively having to do the Michael Jackson dance in the Smooth Criminal video mm. where they magically lean from one way to the other. I'd be quite in favour of that added line of entertainment. I, I, I know it's really unpopular with people and I know it was never a rule, but I just don't see why the obvious solution is not to introduce daylight on VAR crawls. And I know that daylight was never a rule, and it, it's a bit of a kind of red hair. Because they say they can measure it to such a finite point that they, they, yeah, they don't they need they them. I'm not sure that they can. I have hands up, I'm not but, sure that they can, but I, I understand what you're saying. Chins, but, even if they can, they're missing the point. And the, the point isn't whether you can sort of fine, finally tell that ever, someone is offside at all times. That's not kind of the point of the offside rule. The only thing that, make, that gives the rules their, their authority is the, the buy-in of the people watching and people playing and managing and stuff, but basically the buy-in of the people watching. And I think too many of these offside calls don't feel like offsides to fans. And that is the source of the anger that it, it no longer feels just to see a player called offside. So with the Mane one, which is only used as it's the most recent example, take out the tribal element, take out the sort of the banter element of Liverpool not getting a last minute winner. And I think if any fan of any team had that decision made against them, they would in, in instinctively think that is not offside. It doesn't feel offside and how it feels is really important. But I, I feel like Rory is like double trolling me now because he's said about building in daylight into VAR calls when, of course, it's a, it's a law decision. And again, it's this thing with the Mane one of saying... Yeah, that one was really tight. But you are effectively saying, whilst I agree with you, it's frustrating. You're effectively saying it is okay for Liverpool to score that goal. You are framing it entirely in the fact that it's okay for Liverpool to score that goal and not accepting that it's not unfair for Everton to have conceded it. Yeah, it's a really, really good, that's a really, really good point. And you, we do kind of forget that there's two sides to every offside decision, that there's the team that benefits and the team that suffers. And whichever way you flip it, one team is going to suffer. But I maintain that overall, what the introduction of the technology and the combination of the technology and the rule that is not fit for that technology has done is give rise to a class of offsides that don't feel like offsides to fans. And that, that is, is a thing that is much more significant than is being given credit for. Stephen, you have a point on the, ma- on the micro and Rory, you have a macro point uh, that arises from at that micro point. I apologise to the three other people of the SPM team. That's a conversation that the SPM listeners have heard is a heavily edited one from the one that we actually had. 
so you can decide whether you're pleased about that or not. So uh, at this point, we will knock that one on the head until the next time. And have a look at some of your responses to last week's show asking if football can die. Ed Cole has emailed, Dear SPM gents, thanks for the pods. Very enjoyable and interesting insight. I've got a question following on from last week's episode on whether or not football can die, and more specifically, Rory's point on the voices deriding change, always coming from the same demographic, as he pointed out in his German anecdote. I would agree that there are certain sections of the football fan pie chart, perhaps less vocal than others, who would welcome change to the structure of the game and do look with excitement at plans being put forward by those at the top of the pyramid. I also agree that a lot of those who are aghast at the mention of any change whatsoever are reacting with nothing more than for want of a better word, nostalgia towards the English game, i.e. a purely emotional response with no basis in reason or solid argument, which is completely irrelevant when looking at how best to adapt the structure of football to fit in with modern society. However, as Rory pointed out, the origin of the 3pm Saturday kickoff rule, or 2.30pm Saturday in Germany, is that it originally fit into the schedule of factory workers. It was a rule that, along with the majority of other early football laws, was specifically put in place to meet the requirements of fans. Whether or not a 3pm Saturday kickoff or a Monday 8pm or a Sunday 11am kickoff is best for the modern working football fan is irrelevant or more just a matter of chance. As we all know, those decisions aren't being made with fans in mind, rather with the purse strings and ever more bulging bank balances of owners, shareholders and advertisers. The same is true of all the decisions now being made regarding the structure of the Premier League, the dispensing of funds and the relation with European competitions. My question then is this, why not speak to the fans more? What exactly are the league, the owners and the governing bodies so afraid of? We sometimes get drawn into thinking that tribalism from fans would make any constructive conversation impossible. However, the recent joint statement from the six fan groups representing the six teams behind Project Big Picture, or at least consulted on Project Big Picture, I am adding editorially, suggests otherwise. Surely then consultation with fans should be the very first port of call when beginning to even consider any sort of structural change to football. Keep up the good work. Ed Cole, long time listener, first time emailer. And just before I get your thoughts on that, here's something a little shorter from Eugene Mackey. Hi all, long time listener. I started with episode eight and keep meaning to test your timeless subject matter claim by going back to listen to episodes one to seven. I'll let you know how it goes once it happens. Number six is really good. Six is excellent, isn't it? I was very interested by Roy's discussion of the strange primacy of Saturday 3 p.m. kickoff times. I started seriously watching football in 2011 because Raphael van der Vaart was to the Premier League what Heath Ledger was to Nolan's Batman movies, a shot of crazed, euphoric, unsustainable adrenaline, and have always felt that football was a televisual enterprise. I've never been to a Saturday game, have no particular attachment to the tradition, and I'm a bit annoyed that if I lived a few hundred miles south in Brittany, I could watch them all rather than relying on fragmented minute-by-minute live updates. Sunday has always felt like the big football day for me. While Super Sunday deserves to have its pomposity mocked, it's still, unless it's got chinch on it, in which case it really is super, it's still been the time when my family got together to sit down and focus on football for several hours at a time. I'll fall foul of Rory's philosophy here by not presenting a solution, but I'd be surprised if there aren't many under 35s in the UK who feel the same as I do. That is from Eugene Mackey. That's a brilliant point. And it's, that's a really good example of, of how the debate is skewed by the the voices that have power, the voices of kind of, for want of a better word, like establishment fans who have this, this harking back to a t- tradition that only applies to them. So yeah, that for well, the maybe even of, their, their generations before them. Yeah. Like, so for, for a lot of people, Sunday will now be the big football day. You will expect the big games to be on a Sunday. That's what happens. That's what's happened for 28 years. That's quite a lot of people. So if you, if you, even if you only started watching football in 1992, you would now be, I don't know, what, getting on for 40, probably, if you were sort of sentient enough to be kind of watching football properly in 1992, you would expect the games to be on 
Sunday. So pretty much everybody under 40 is now used to the big games being on Sunday and not at three o'clock on a Saturday. And it's a, it, that is in, in microcosm how this debate is skewed because there will be a huge swathe of people who aren't being, and this takes us back to the first email. It's difficult to consult with fans. I'm not convinced that, I think the statement that all football fans love football is much more complicated a subject than than that suggests. I think most, if you went to most fans and asked what they think is best for football, it would very often coincide with what's best for their club. And that's really hard to separate. But it's, yeah, the Saturday thing is a great example of, we have this debate about how this thing really matters, but it only matters to us, to the portion of people who get to talk about this stuff. We never ask anybody else. So if you consult with fans, would you go and consult fans in Japan and Malaysia and Brazil and Angola and America and Canada? And all the other countries, and I can keep on. Are you going to go through the whole list? <laughs> 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 or oh, you know, an episode that would be to see if uh, see if Rory includes territories in his list of the, um, Newfoundland. The um, if you were to consult fans, you'd consult with the fan groups, and the fan groups do a huge amount of good work, and they're really important. But they 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 represent a really really small sliver of fans. They don't. They are not. They're presented, and this is my problem with the whole thing. They're presented as being a kind of universal voice, and they're not because the priorities of the match going fan for Manchester United are not the same as the priorities of, you know, the fans in Malaysia and wherever. It's not so much that the, the priorities of the match-going fan are less important, but we, we, we pretend too much that the priorities of all the other fans aren't important at all. And this leads me rather nicely, and unbeknownst to you, uh, Roy, that is beautiful presenting because you've segued perfectly onto our next email. But given our prescience in talking about European Super League as part of last week's conversation, we will take in an email from Hamal Shah about that, which touches on something that you were just saying, Rory. Dear Hugh, Steve, Rory and Mr. Hinchcliffe. Oh, that's nice. A bit of respect, finally. After last week's pod, I was trying to think if there was any precedent where an elite Super League has been established and whether it has been successful or not. Whilst not entirely the same, the closest one I could think of was IPL in cricket. Because of how India dominates world cricket in terms of revenue generation and number of total fans worldwide, it doesn't seem to matter if IPL has not been as popular outside of India. They created new franchises, threw money at it, found room in the calendar and got the best players playing in it. IPL franchises have remained profitable over the years and the quality of play has been high. I would say it has been a success. Now, if we take this to European football by taking the top 18 teams in Europe and creating a European league, I don't see how it is anything but a success. It seems that most of the dissension I hear comes from traditional fans and media and is invariably about how any change to the status quo is not good. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But at least 10 of these 18 elite European clubs are no longer local clubs. They have a worldwide following of fans. Most of them have grown too big for their leagues. Clubs like Liverpool, Manchester United, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus have a bigger proportion of fans outside their cities than in them. Why wouldn't their owners want to think bigger? Are we, due to our familiarity with how football is operated, constrained by a lack of vision? Why wouldn't we want to watch the big sides playing each other with the best players more regularly? Isn't that why the Premier League is more popular than the Championship? And would the National Leagues actually become more competitive if these 18 super clubs formed their own league? Saying all that, and here's the twist from Hamal, I am a traditionalist and I would hate any change to the status quo. However, <laughs> I am also a Liverpool fan and so I get the best of both worlds with Premier League and Champions League participation. However, if I was a West Brom fan, would I welcome a European Super League? He says, continuing with last week's reference, which carried on on Twitter and Rory managed to offload all the fury onto Sid Lowe. Maybe this could be an opportunity for my club, if I were a West Brom fan, to aim for being part of the new big six, i.e., he says, throwing shade at a new club, become the new Spurs. Regards. From Hamal. 
the, the most interesting thing to take out of that is that Hamal probably goes through the, a lot of the, the same thought processes as many football fans, is that I can see where the benefits of this might lead to, but ultimately I'm a traditionalist, so I prefer it not to happen. And that's possibly the, the contradiction that is holding it back or keeping us on the current path because there are enough people like Hamal who have a foot in both camps and therefore maintaining the status quo seems that the most logical way to go. Jonathan Wilson wrote a really interesting thing in The Guardian in the last few days about the IPL and the way that he follows that and has a particular affinity to one team and, and, and effectively compared it to how a, a European Super League might look. But of course, the difference between those two things is that, as Hamal mentioned, in the IPL, those were, were new franchises, yes, set up in cities and, and they have a base and a route, but they, they didn't necessarily have an existing fan base. Whereas the European Super League is trying to, or, or the, the proposal behind that would be to take these clubs with you know, well over a century's worth of history and, and roots in a very specific community and, and start something new with them within a different environment. So, so the comparison isn't exact. And that's the problem with the, super, with the Super League, is that the big clubs don't seem to realise that someone's going to finish bottom of it, which is where Sid Lowe's trouble started. <laughs> Would the, you like um, to very uh, well, apologise? Very well, very well <laughs> no. played there, Rory. He I wouldn't like to apologise. You're not going to apologise, no, not to Sid, to West Brom fans. No, does it, it, it's, not, it's not a criticism of West Brom. It's just that you know, West Brom do play... And my favourite one was someone saying to replying to Sid and saying that the media's got uh, got an agenda against West Brom, and you just think, really doesn't? I, it, I mean, you just need to see the replies to the uh, Ryan Mason tweet about Chinch's co-commentary at Burnley to see that really most fan bases have exactly the same opinions of all the people who cover their club. Did, did did Sid double down and say the media really rarely thinks about West Brom at all? <laughs> and he also did well to explain what you meant. Um, in yeah, he a did. Way of he explained himself. it far more. He explained it far, far more eloquently than I did. No, I just I, West Brom is a is a. You could have used any club, but it's they're the best example. That you know, West Brom are the sort of team that the bid sits think is holding them back. The bid sits think there is no space for West Brom in the modern media climate, but they seem to not have noticed that one of them would have to play the West Brom role because if you have a lead, someone's going to finish either seventeenth or eighteenth in it. Um, there's no point sort of harping on about it, but. There's this idea that, so the bid sits are basically, have basically have this idea that, that if they leave, they enter this utopia where they can just make loads of money. And I don't think that's true. I don't think a super league is the answer to their problems. I do think it's inevitable, but I don't think it's, it will, it will you know, be the land of milk and honey they think it will. But also that this argument that like English football would thrive without its six biggest clubs is just complete nonsense. And the, the parallel I would draw would be Saint and Greavesy which will give my age away a little bit. If you remember when, when ITV lost the, the rights to the, Premier, the newly formed Premier League to Sky, St. Andreeves used to talk about the, what is now the championship highlights as though it was the top division. So they'd be like, and th- here's the highlights from this week's big game, South End Tranmere. And you knew that it wasn't the weekend's big game because the weekend's big game was Manchester United against Liverpool. And it would be the same thing. And that's not to disrespect the other 14 teams or the rest of the Premier or whatever. But those are the six biggest clubs in the country. If you lose them, your league will have less prestige. Don't pretend it won't. Just going back to, actually, I want to change the subject slightly. Going back to the Tottenham fans' criticism of my slash Don Goodman's commentary of Burnley and Tottenham. I'm quite disappointed the Tottenham fans didn't throw in the fact that I had a failed transfer to Tottenham. I thought that might actually surface 
and they'd say, this is why he's got it in for Tottenham, because there's a possibility of, of signing for them when Christian Gross was there. And he did, so they don't, so clearly, this is the confusion here. They needed to know it was me, and then if they'd thrown in the fact I didn't sign for them and went to Sheffield Wednesday, I was always going to go to Sheffield Wednesday ahead of Tottenham, wasn't I? I'm a bit, I'm a bit surprised, a bit disappointed they've not uh, levelled that accusation at me. <laughs> I was, that's, I was that's been burning a hole in your brain for the last five minutes. I only just, I only just re- and that's nope. normally any criticism is, you know, if you, you play for City, you must hate Man United. If you nearly sign for Tottenham and then you cover them, you, you're clearly going to have it in for them, even though they play badly, because you very nearly signed for them. When, no, it didn't work out like that at all. But that's what the people normally do, fans normally do, is they say, I've got to find a reason why he's saying, why he's speaking the truth and why he's doing his job. But no, I, I can't have him criticising my team. Let's find out a reason why he's saying these things. I, I nearly jumped in on your behalf with exactly that point, Chinch, saying, no, if anything, Andy has got an affinity to Tottenham because when he tells his fanciful stories about the big clubs that tried to sign him, when he talks about Tottenham, it's actually true. Well, I'm glad, Chinch, that you at least managed to get that off your chest eventually. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, the first classico of the season was a strange affair. Despite having all the characteristics of a modern game of football, VAR controversy, claims of bias, and some world-class atavelding from Sergio Ramos, there were no fans at camp now, and only one of the teams are currently in the upper echelons of the early La Liga table. That is because Barcelona are, and this is true, a mess. Well, that's the impolite way of putting it. The polite way of putting it is that they are in a rebuild. This is, and let's get this out of the way early, a word heard a great deal in American sports, where you tear up what might have been the poor decision-making and recruitment of a previous front office regime and start again. But in the US, it is a little easier to do. You may well have the restraints of a salary cap, but on the other hand, you have a draft, you have free agency to completely reshuffle your roster every single year, should you so desire. But what of Barcelona's predicament. How do they rebuild? We've seen examples in the past of clubs proactively recruiting players that make their squad younger. Sometimes there's been an effort to move players on for financial reasons, but not every manager has either the forethought or indeed the luxury of time to be able to reshape their team for the next generation. Not everyone is Sir Alex Ferguson. Having said that, not every club is today's Barcelona. So how do you rebuild? Can you do it without stability? And perhaps more importantly, without money? And can they work even in the most desperate of situations. It is at this point that I turn to Andy Hinchcliffe because if there was ever a team in need of a rebuild, it would have been Sheffield Wednesday, circa <laughs> millennium, when Andy Hinchcliffe's <laughs> contributions were starting to be, shall we say, minimal. Um, I, let's be honest here, I <clears throat> was never part of the rebuild of any club I signed for well, actually, going to Everton, there was it wasn't a rebuild. It was just things had got to the end of um, a, a cycle of success with with great players. The Howard Kendall era, winning the league, doing well in Europe. Those players clearly got older. So it wasn't a rebuild. They had no choice. They had to freshen up with younger players. So again, that changed and football had changed as well. So I was kind of part of, if you call it a rebuild, yes, but it was just basically a freshening up and bringing in players to replace ones that had had a lot of success. So that that is rebuilding. But I suppose you have to kind of define, you know, it's all about clubs being in transition, about rebuilding. Is it just finding the route again to success? I presume for someone like Barcelona, it's more of a problem because history, the weight of history and success for them has been enormous. So they have, that there's going to be more pressure on them to get things right quicker than maybe other teams. They can take a bit more time. But is it just, again, finding a route through to success again? But again, having a stable club, is that success? Having success on the pitch, winning things, is that success? Playing with a, an attractive philosophy, 
is that what fans want? Is that what clubs want? So there's so many elements that you consider to, to what is to rebuild a club. What does that actually mean? Is it purely success winning things on the pitch? Is that what every club is aiming for? So there is like a rather, rather flippantly suggested um, Sheffield Wednesday. And to, to draw perhaps for the very first time, a through line from Sheffield Wednesday circa 1999 to 2001 to Barcelona 2020 mm. is that the recruitment policy, and I don't, funnily enough, I don't include you in this, Chinch, the recruitment policy of Sheffield Wednesday, who are a team battling against relegation, attempting to basically plaster over every crack or to try and fix a long-term problem with a short-term player acquisition. That is how a team gets into trouble. And at yep. some point they have to say, rip it all up, Let's start this again. Because that, that, that's not rebuilding. That's, as you say, papering over the cracks just to get you through one season. To but it, it, and yes. it won't give you longevity. That's exactly. the, I, I will give you longevity, even though I retired two years later. That, that's what you're trying to get, the balance of saying, well, things are, are desperate now. So do we act in the short term and get certain players in, experienced players in, who prove themselves massively on the international stage? Uh, and then you avoid relegation, which is what we did. But eventually we did get relegated because we were rubbish. Um, but then, again, trying to extend that out into saying, right, we've done it this year. But again, that might not work for a whole season the following season. So again, it is, you do get short term. I think lots of clubs react in the short term to try and maybe save themselves. Certainly Premier League clubs do that. But that doesn't give you the stability that you need over the next five to ten years, which I presume that's what, again, the owners, the, the chief execs of clubs are looking for, is players that will give you both can solve a short-term problem, but give you long-term, a long-term future as well. And, and, the, and the reason that, that we do try and put Sheffield Wednesday in a completely tri- contrived way into the same basket case as Barcelona yeah. is to say that the, that the amount of short-term mistakes that are made can only eventually surely lead to a point where there needs to be a long-term philosophy put in place. And that often means for financial reasons, for the fact that you've got players on bloated contracts in terms yeah. of length in terms of salary you have to you have to literally blow it up you have to literally blow it up you have to not literally blow it up and and start again but the, the reason i bring in sheffield wednesday is because i wanted to ask you if if there was any sense at the time from you or from others from fans that they were thinking this these are not the right decisions and at some point we're going to have to go nuclear because these are bad decisions from people who have a bad idea about what to do for the future of the club. Uh, yeah, it was probably for the first time. It was later in my career. It's not something that I probably thought about when I was in my 20s, but in my 30s, when you were then seeing experienced international players coming to, to Wednesday for, for big money, and then also the kind of characters that they were. That's what really worried me. I knew what maybe I could give and certain other players, experienced players in the squad could give. But when you're signing in, and it did seem a little bit, it was through kind of, yes, we want good players, but there did seem to be a, a bit of desperation there as well that, that Again, are we trying to prove to the fans that we can sign these international players on big money as well? And that was where lots of clubs have had their problems. They've got players in on huge money. Their characters aren't quite right. They're not really in it for the right reasons. You get relegated. You can't get rid of those players unless you give them away. And financially, the club spirals as well. So, yeah, even at the time, I was looking around that agency, Peter Atherton and Des Walker, Emerson Tom, uh, Pavel Cernicek. There was a lot of very experienced good players, but I knew good characters as well. But there were certain others, and I think it was true for all those players that I've mentioned, you looked around and you thought we're not really truly a team here that are going to stick together and be successful for the next five years. It was very much a short-term thing because I felt there was certain players there. I was not one of them that would look to move on maybe if things didn't work out. When we got relegated, I I never asked the club to leave because I wanted to try and put that situation right. That's generally how I felt. But a lot of those other players, 
were, were clearly thinking of themselves and right, how can I you know, get the money out of the club and maybe move on somewhere else. So this is a problem that, that clubs have, but it is, must be very difficult, especially for Premier League clubs, when you're struggling, battling relegation. The fans want you to, to be trying to do something, not thinking about two years, five years down the line. They're thinking about today and the next game and can we save ourselves? I think then you can fall into making huge errors in terms of who, who you sign, how much you sign them for, the length of the contracts and how much you pay them. I think lots of clubs, Man City, Wednesday, Leeds, all fell into that category of having players that weren't good enough, couldn't get rid of them. And when it started to spiral, it just went completely out of control and they dropped down into, into League One. So it is a major problem trying to look five years ahead when the here and now is really tricky. I can imagine for Sheffield Wednesday at that time, Chinch, it would have been very difficult though to, to plan a long way in the future that in that era of English football, the structures weren't necessarily in place. And you've also anyway. got someone like Ron Atkinson, Steve, as well, who was, he basically wanted to sign me and the club were maybe thinking, we're not too, but he wanted things done. He got things done. There aren't maybe many coaches now who have that type of, of power, the control just, to actually get... Just that many get, Kit-Kats. Exactly. <laughs> towers of Kit-Kats. But I, so I think, again, having Ron at the club at that time, the players that he wanted to sign, he signed them and the club went along with it. So maybe those kind of days have gone where you have an all-powerful coach stroke manager who can make decisions on players that are coming in you can understand how a mid-ranking though top flight team th th there's a huge challenge for them to try and build longer term to get the structures in place what's extraordinary <clears throat> is how these behemoth clubs allow themselves to get into a position where they aren't thinking beyond what is happening in in the here and now and that they're not learning from the mistakes of other clubs previously. You know, Manchester United didn't learn from Liverpool's fall from grace when Alex Ferguson retired. And Barcelona seemingly haven't taken a look at what happened at Old Trafford and what is still happening there now and thought, you know what, we need to, we need to make sure that when this glorious period of our history in terms of the players we've got at our disposal comes to an end, yeah, but surely, Steve, sure they must have. They, that, that's their job. They must have been saying, you know, Messi's not going to play until he's 60. You can't seriously think. Or maybe they have done that, and in time it will sort itself out. Maybe, again, you just have these short-term short pain, and eventually it will improve. But again, it doesn't seem like a Barcelona that has been the case, which it, it amazes me. I know Rory, Rory's looked at this a lot more closely than I have, but it just seems, it almost feels, seems like they're enthralled to these players to the point where they assume, well, Piquet's brilliant, Busquets is brilliant, Messi is the best ever, and somehow they will continue to be indefinitely until the next version of those players materialises mm. from thin air. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's that. I think they just can't envision a way around the problem. I think it's really hard when you, and it's more pronounced when you have... You know, if you're a, I don't know, if you're a mid-table Premier League team who, who has a generation of players, a squad that comes together and gets you to the Champions League, then it'll be hard enough to move on from them. And you've seen that countless times with, with teams that kind of built sides that, like Swansea, say, who built a side that got them to the top half of the Premier League, won the League Cup, and then they didn't really know how to, to move on from that. It was all, you always got the sense with Swansea after that that they were grasping onto the wisps of what had gone before and just hoping that something kind of occurred and they went to start going through managers they made some some weird signings none of them quite worked There's, they lose their identity they get relegated and that's what then happens and Swansea now are building a, an identity again of, of a kind of place where they put you know Steve people plays good football they, they they bring through young players they're a trusted kind of it's how quickly that's stone. happened as well because it started yeah. with Graham Potter and again the philosophy was we're going to use homegrown players we're going to get a coach and you can work with those but so how quickly they realized 
the mistakes that they made. Yeah. And again, look how quickly they they kind of put the handbrake on and turned and got back the way. It was a rebuild. Oh no, it's it, a also a change of, of thought of how we run the club as well. We can't we, pay big wages. We're going to use academy players. We're going to get a certain type of coaching, and we're going to stick with it. When Graham Potter left. What do we do? Do we stay with that model? Yeah, we'll get Steve Cooper in and carry on down that road. And it, it's take, it will, I presume it will take them back to the Premier League. And again, it's, it's admirable because they could have just said, oh, it's just the way it's going. This is how we've done it. We'll always do it. We'll just spiral down. No, they, they changed it dramatically. And actually, it's improved it enormously. The problem is now they're selling their very best players. That yeah. is the only thing. Their young players are so good. But again, they're saying, right, we need the money in. This is the type of club we are. They've cut their cloth and they're, they're getting the balance right of running the business and also playing good football, successful football on the pitch, which again is all the ultimate, I presume, for every club. But what they couldn't do was rebuild after that first generation of Sigurdsson and Joe Allen and, and all the others. Once they'd gone, Swansea looked around and kind of thought, and Michu and all the others, they looked around and thought, we don't really know what we're doing. So they then... Is that understandable, be- Roy? Because you have that success. Like at Barcelona, you, does there come a point where selling Messi has to be done for, to move on. If you don't ever get rid of him and Busquets and Piquet, does it come up, or the, the president, whoever's the president, will never be the one that, that sells Lionel Messi or doesn't yeah, want him I in think, the so that's a problem what, with Barcelona? I was going to say, that if you, if you think that this is a problem that most clubs face and most clubs struggle with, if you then kind of multiply it by what do you do when you've had arguably the greatest club team in history, how do you move on from that? There's, there's always, this sounds really cheesy, but I've always kind of, had this thing that there's a, there's a massive yin and yang in football that if you if you if your club is blessed to have a truly great player or manager the, the price you pay for that is that it's difficult once they go so you look at united after 30 you know so united might not win a lead for 10 years it's it's getting on for eight uh, and given given you know the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer still manager it's probably going to be 10 so the um but would United fans have taken that if you'd said to them, look, you'll be the, the preeminent side in, in England and sometimes Europe for almost 30 years? You, you probably would. And, and that's just, you just have to accept it. That if you have a great player, if you have a great individual player, it's really hard to replace them. And after a while, you know, that happened with Liverpool and Gerrard. After a while, you just have to accept, well, this is kind of, this is how it works. I think that with Barcelona, it's that they hit such a height that not only did they have the best player in history, arguably the best player in history, arguably the best club team in, in, that, that we've ever seen, they had this kind of idiosyncratic style that redefined the way we played football. Like the, it's impossible to, to understate, really, how high Barcelona soared. The come down was always going to be absolutely brutal. And it's not so much that they think the players will go on forever. I just think they, they haven't been able to think, how the hell do we start again? But to be honest, this sounds a bit. This is you know, this is much more kind of cocksure than I like to be. But I don't think it's that hard. If I'm completely honest, I really don't think it's that hard. I think what what makes it difficult is ego, and politics, and a desire not to upset people, and an inability to kind of be on the same page. But if you look at what Bayern Munich have done, who've done a, and I wrote about this last week, but Bayern have basically rebuilt their team and, and they've kind of done it on the quiet or as quiet as it can be when you're Bayern Munich. And you now look and think, well, they've still got Neuer, Boa, a spine of Neuer, Boateng, Muller and Lewandowski and Javi Martinez occasionally, who were all in their early 30s. And we were saying a couple of years ago, we're starting to look a little bit past it. But around them, they've got a squad that is basically entirely under 25 and is already champions of Europe and will get better. And that, I think, is... And what they've done there is they kind of... They recognise that you have to keep the superstars happy. You have to, you have to kind of build your, the core of your side around them. You can't kind of usher them out of the door. But 
you have to prepare for a future what even while they're still at their peak and they're still kind of competitive you have to prepare for a future where they will not be there anymore and it's it's that bit that i think most clubs fall down on at whatever level is the ability to think there is going to be a tomorrow when we have to answer this question so let's start thinking about the answer today the same things happened at man city exactly the same things happened at man city they haven't thought enough about what tomorrow looks like and that's the point isn't it you've got you've got a rebuild the most successful rebuilds you've got one happening right now at Bayern Munich you could you could argue that Sir Alex Ferguson did it at least two times successfully one involved Cleberson and Eric Jemba Jemba so probably wasn't quite as successful um but you've <laughs> you've got those situations where you have the stability but Bayern are incredibly stable in terms of the trust that they have in their vision they're not necessarily going to if one out of three doesn't work in terms of their rebuilding recruitment strategy they're still going to probably win the league or at least not necessarily have a drop-off that suggests that it hasn't worked or it can hide those ones that haven't worked so you've got the perfect situation that the Manchester United and in the 1990s and, and 2000s Bayern Munich now and I would imagine lots of other clubs previous to that you can think of more examples I'm sure where you you have the stability you have the money you have a kind of cushion of success so that if it doesn't it all work perfectly it doesn't necessarily reduce your ability to gain that success so these are the perfect environments in which you can successfully rebuild but there are countless examples and we've just mentioned Barcelona who are currently experiencing like if you like the zenith of those catastrophic elements all coming together and putting them in such a, a, a disadvantaged position but then you've got the Swansea's who are potentially constantly having to rebuild and that is almost the philosophy we've spoken before about teams in the lower leagues like I think the, the example we used a couple of years ago was Rochdale in that you have to generate talent buy from non-league develop them, sell them to be able to then fund the next generation of buying from non-league, developing and keeping your club going. I appreciate in coronavirus times, it's incredibly difficult uh, to think about that being successful in of itself. But, but still, that's the policy. It's a constant rebuild. Your, your philosophy of football is to rebuild. And so there are, there are kind of three different things, if you like. The, the successful rebuild, the proactive one, the, the car crash rebuild where everything has to go terribly wrong, signing Andy Hinchcliffe for Sheffield Wednesday before you then rebuild. Or thirdly, you have the constant rebuild, which is baked into the DNA of the club because that's the only way that you can actually exist for any period of time. So what I would say is that I think maybe there's a, there's a, there's a way of, de- of using language to delineate this because too many clubs try to rebuild when what they should be doing is all thinking constantly, how do we refresh this? And most clubs, to be fair, do. They, they might get it wrong and the, the signings that they make in, in a summer might not work out or they might, they might target the wrong areas or whatever. But most clubs are thinking, right, we need, to, we need to keep this fresh, we need to keep on building. I think with the really successful teams, what happens is they get so hooked on the success, so convinced that their methods are... You know, whenever, whenever a team does really well and wins a lead or wins the Champions League or, or you know, kind of is, is acknowledged as being one of the best in the world, there's this tendency amongst, amongst the media... To, to go to the place and say, this is how they've done it. And a few of us have got this, this running joke that it's banana bread journalism. Have I explained banana bread to you before? No, go ahead. So you know those pieces that you get where it's the secrets of a team's success. So if Watford make a great start to the season, someone will go, normally the Daily Mail, and uh, they, will, they will ask the manager and the coaches and the players and whatever about, about why they're having such a good start to the season. And the answer is normally they've had quite easy fixtures. But that's not good enough. There has to be a narrative. And there's a streak in British football journalism, of which obviously I'm a part, I'm not saying I'm separate, which 
use gives deep like details minute details explanatory power so the two the best example of this was a piece in the mail which was a really good piece not about not a, not a, an an invalid piece at all about city's first title win under Guardiola and it was all about how how Pep had had turned city around and the, like the actual answer to that question is probably quite an in-depth and moderately boring tactical analysis and sort of assessment of his coaching methods but that's not really very easy to explain to people so what journalists do and i'm the same not criticizing anybody is you go and you find the kind of the narrative bits the nice little bits of detail nuggets as a lot of sports editors will call them and and then pretend that they're the reason so that it's always things like the manager's banned ketchup or alternatively the manager has reintroduced ketchup Ketchup in, in the football media has incredible power. It's not, nothing has greater agency than ketchup, not even HP sauce. Yoga is a popular kind of um, inclusion. Tends to be the case that teams who are doing well will be doing yoga sessions, and the yoga sessions will be explained for, for helping the players be looser. Uh, cryotherapy. Hot dogs, hot dogs ever? ever <laughs> hot dogs do not feature. Oh, really? Cryotherapy chambers, another stalwart of the trope oh yeah uh, ice baths ice baths, ice baths. um the uh, there'll always be one that's the, the, and generally it appears in this it's a very daily the daily mail kind of perfected the headline before anybody else but everyone does them now so it's not it's not like an anti-daily mail thing everyone does them now and it's always three things colon in the headline three things colon uh, how manager turned around team basically so it will be something like yoga ice baths and team nights out how Kike Sanchez Flores rescued Espanol. That's, that's basically <laughs> how the whole thing worked. And the reason it's called Banana Bread is that in the piece about Man City and their first title win, one, one of the details that was given explanatory power was the fact that some of the players' partners had made banana breads to, to take into training. And it, so it was kind of yoga, tactical analysis and banana bread, how Man City won the title. <laughs> So there is now a running joke amongst a few of us uh, sneering metropolitan types in the, in the football <laughs> media about banana bread pieces of journalism. And I think the problem is, to return to my original point, the clubs think like that too. They think the things we are doing are right. The things that we are doing are the absolute high point of what we could do. And as you are successful, you stop. You, you start seeing your success as a natural state of affairs rather than something you're working towards. Hansi Flick, who's my new hero, and to an extent my best friend, um, <laughs> said to me the other day that there is, a, that there is a, um, there's a phrase in German that success is not something you, that you own, it's something you rent and you have to pay the rent every day. And I think too many teams forget that, that you have to keep, it's not the case that what you're doing is, is because it works now, will, will work forever. You have to change. And that is where the ultra successful teams fall down. So they win the Champions League or they win the title. And they think, well, obviously we're winning the title because everything, because we've got the best banana breads, because we're doing yoga, we're doing the ice baths. Everything is, this is how we won the title. It doesn't occur to them that maybe the other teams are doing yoga and ice baths and making banana bread as well. And that they will catch up and you have to keep pushing to stay ahead. And the danger is, if you don't do that, if you don't continually evolve, you get to the point where you need a rebuild. I just love the idea that how have, how have the club achieved this? Is it the 500 million pounds they've spent or is it because Pablo Zabaleta's wife is a really good baker? Definitely the second. It, it's a really interesting, like, this is a bit kind of inside media. I think it's a really interesting insight into the way that we see football, that we, 
because as, as journalists and to an extent as a culture, because we don't, we don't engage with the idea that, yeah, like, so the reason Man City won that title was they spent, they had the best coach in the world. They spent a shitload of money on players and his tactics were better than everybody else's. That's why they won the league. But there has to be this kind of belief that there is some, it's like magical thinking almost, that there's some sort of magic ingredient that explains it. And because I guess it's easier for journalists to explain this is what it's like behind the scenes at Man City than it is to explain to people in an engaging way, this is the way City play tactically and this is how it's worked. You tend to focus much more on that detail than you do on the broader story. And so the detail becomes the story itself when it shouldn't. I suppose it's like Fergie talks about, it's running to stand still, isn't it? Basically, if you want to, if you want to keep up and keep ahead, you, you have to keep thinking about tomorrow. And again, if that player drops out, what, what would we do? So that's what I thought... Again, clearly they, they don't because, again, teams maybe get a little bit complacent when they have success. They leave it four or five years and then things go horribly wrong, which they probably will do, or things start to dip. And then they think, oh, my God. But that becomes surely that's a harder thing to sort out if you leave it. It's like leaving a crack in the wall, isn't it? If you deal with it, if you fill it early on when it's a small crack, the, the, the problem is, is dealt with. If you leave it and think, oh, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. In the end, your house falls down. That's a great analogy, Chinch, isn't it? Great it is. Analogy. It is. <laughs> so it's a little crack turning into the house falling down. So if you play it to Bayern Munich, who've done it really effectively, there will come a point where, where Neuer and Boateng and Muller and Lewandowski, let's, let's use Lewandowski, there'll come a point where Lewandowski's apparently immortal body gives way on him and he's no longer like this goal terminator. And he starts, you know, his, goal his, terminator. His, well, that's what it, if <laughs> you look at him, future. He's, he's like Robert Lewandowski. Six in the Terminator series. Goal Let, Terminator. Goal Terminator. It's the it's the bringing together of two beloved franchises. That's the, why goal he's a bloody robot from the future. <laughs> he is a robot from the future. Is he going to have a, uh, a stadium named after him in Poland in the same way that Arnold Schwarzenegger did in in Austria? There's a good bit of banana bread about Lewandowski actually. That you know he has his um he has his pudding first. Yes, you've told yes. us this story. This is what they do in the future. You have your puddings first. Maybe that's what it is. with a bowl of tomato soup. The, Crazy, but it but, works. So that's given this explanatory power that the reason Robert Lewandowski's good is he eats his pudding first, but it isn't. He's, he's good for a million <laughs> different reasons. It's just, he just happens to eat his pudding first. It might help a bit, but it's not the main thing. But there'll come a point where Lewandowski's not as good and Bayern will suffer. But in, that, in the year or two or three or whatever it is before they find a natural heir to Lewandowski, and because of the nature of the economics of football now, they will do. The fact is that like Leroy Sane will be there and Serge Gnabry and Leon Doretzka and Joshua Kimmich and you know they've signed Alexander Nubel to be Neuer's replacement. He'll come through eventually. They will be fine. They might have to change the way they play. They will still have to kind of adapt to life without the goal terminator. But they won't. It won't be this sort of big screeching halt where everything kind of falls apart at once, which is what's happened to Barcelona. And suddenly, Busquets is too old and Messi's too old and, and Piquet's too old and they. Everyone, all the players that are still there are a bit crap and, and they've paid far too much money to Usman Dembele and Philippe Coutinho and they don't want either of them. And they're right at the edge of their salary, their salary limit. They can't pay any more money. There's no money there to, to play with. It's, with Barcelona, it's all hit at once. Whereas, whereas Bayern will still get hit and they might still struggle for a year or two without Lewandowski. But the rest of the team should be able to pick up the slack in that period. And that has to be the way you work, I think. Bayern are in a advantageous position compared to some of the other European superpowers in that they are able to do this refresh year on year out without it being a big financial commitment for them. The way that they work within the German transfer market is very efficient 
and they are able to, and look, they, they deserve great credit for identifying the talent early and setting their sights on that player for down the road. But in operating in that way, they are often able to pick up those very, very good players from other German clubs for either nothing or not very much money. Yet they also have the ability, if needed, they have the, the muscle and, and the status within the game to be able to spend 50 million quid if somewhere along the way they do need to, to plug a hole with an elite player, which is not a situation that many of the other clubs that, that we, we have and will discuss find themselves in. But yes, Barcelona have got a lot of problems all coming along at the same time, but it's difficult for them to replace a Xavi, an Iniesta, a, a PK, a Busquets, and then obviously some Messi on the cheap from other Spanish clubs. If they're going to find like-for-like like replacements, those, are going, those players are going to cost a vast sum of money. And because they are once-in-a-generation type of players, they're not necessarily the kind that they can cultivate within their own academy. And obviously, in the, in the Premier League, we have a situation where there's a Premier League tax on every signing that the clubs try to make. So it's very... It, yes they need to have better structures in place to identify players earlier and they might be able to get players in for for less money and develop them themselves rather than waiting to see how they progress elsewhere either in the Premier League or in Europe but their Premier League clubs the likes of Barcelona Real Madrid as well are, are having to spend an awful lot more money than Bayern Munich are to save the same to solve the same kind of problems now, can I just quickly go off at a slight tangent? Are Terminators robots? Are they actually robots? Because I know, we're, know what's going to happen. I'm going to call them robots, and all the fans of the Terminator films are going to go, they're not robots, they're, they're cyborgs. cyborgs or something. Cyborgs. Yeah, but I think we have to look. We have to get underneath the skin of Robert Lewandowski, and he could well be, he could well be from the future. His jawline suggests that there might be something metallic uh, yes, yours has just been built upon Chinch. So, right I'm so for the past, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Effectively, what Chinch is saying is that big club academies shouldn't necessarily be feeding their prospective number nine development players their pudding first. Mm. Instead, they need to be finding a way of bringing them back from the future. Although it's only 2029 in the original Terminator, so it's not actually or that. More, or more maybe of a flexible exoskeleton. I don't know, Steve. It's a, it's, it's a tricky one for clubs, isn't it? Liquid mercury. That's, let's build our strikers of the future out of liquid mercury and um, just to finish up on on Barcelona and also Real Madrid given that we started talking about the the Clasico that um when Joseph Maria Bartomeu said that these seven players are the ones that that Barcelona can keep and essentially said that they can all go their their recruitment strategy thereafter was interesting because they they signed four players aged 22 or younger and also Miralem Pjanic who's 30 they tried to at least with their signings sign young players Real Madrid, and we've mentioned it a lot on this podcast, have been for a while signing teenagers from Brazil to populate their what they hope will be their next generation of, of Galacticos. So there is at least an attempt. Now, Real Madrid have done it to a certain degree of success because they are integrating those players. Rodrigo, uh, Vinicius Junior have, have both been a, a relative success so far. Barcelona, we, we wait and see. They might have been just as successful signing the likes of Pedri and Trincao and Serginio Dest, who's already in the team. So we should take this opportunity to say that we may well be giving them credit for what they have attempted to do after realizing that everything needed blowing up because it's not immediately that we will know whether that's successful or not and it's it's i just think it's it's fitting that 
that Real Madrid, on the other side of this, who are being more successful than Barcelona currently, have already attempted to do that, at least with some sort of proactivity, realising that their, their major players are getting older. Yeah, Real are a bit of a weird one because the, the policy of signing expensive teenagers from Brazil is, is risky, but at least it's a kind of nod to the future. So you've got Vinicius, you've got Rodrigo, and you've got Genier. Um, that's not how you pronounce either of those names. Um, but they've tried that right. microphone now as well. You just I know, uh, yeah. gobbed all over it. Covered, it. Even <laughs> even they're even doing it with defenders because because Militao is what he's at. Yeah, Militao's only twenty. Yeah. But each, but then they go and sell Ashraf, Ashraf Hakimi, who is who is very much from the future and is the world's greatest footballer. Twenty twenty seven. Ashraf Hakimi, <laughs> Ballon d'Or twenty twenty seven. And they sell him and you think, well, hang on, Danny Carvajal's getting older. Hikimi can play right and left. He's, he can play fullback or winner. You keep, Ash- like, of all the things you have to do is you keep Ashraf Hikimi. Um, but they didn't find it so easy to do that. They still can't really move on from Marcelo. Although they've got Furlan, Men- Furlan Mendy, who they brought from, bought from Leon, I guess, last two summers ago. Although it's, it's hard to work out when stuff happened. Um, they're trying. And th- this is the other thing we should say with Barcelona is that Barcelona have tried to buy players to rejuvenate their squad. It's just not worked. They've, they've chosen the wrong ones. It's, not, it's been a bit haphazard. It's not that they've just sat there and thought, let's let our squad, squad get to 33 and see what happens. I think the, the funny thing with Barca is, even in losing the Classico, you, you can sort of see how the future Barcelona might, might look. And they, they've got very lucky to an extent, because they've put a lot of work in, that they've got Ansu Fati, who looks every inch a kind of global sensation in the making. And you kind of look at him and you look at Pedri and you think, all right, there's a bit of youth there, Trincao, as you say. A bit of youth there. They've got, I mean, selling Artur in the summer was a bit weird, but you've got Especially Longley, to replace him with, with somebody With a 30-year-old, like yeah. The, you've got Longley, who's not too old. Jordi Alba's probably got a couple of years left in him. Dest. I think there's still a lot of work to do for Barcelona. And the, other, the main thing with Barcelona is they don't any longer have a kind of overarching ideology. The problem with Real is that I'm not sure they do either. I think it's all very much kind of this will do for now. I don't see how they fit everybody. I don't think they've been bought to any strategy other than these kids are talented, let's buy them. And that is, that's not ideal, but they're, they're at least making an effort, I guess. What, what's interesting about Ronald Koeman being in that situation, that w- one of the times that we've seen a, a Premier League club have to rebuild is Southampton because they have had all their players that have reached sort of national consciousness and done well for them, uh, taken on by Manchester United, by, by Liverpool to, to a great extent. And, and Ronald Koeman was there for one of those years where many of those players were taken from him. So he was forced to rebuild for a you know, slightly different reason, but still <laughs> slightly less money. But it all, all, re- all relies, and, and Southampton's problem was that they, they recruited brilliantly after the first wave of players left. Then the second load of players, they didn't quite recruit as well and then the third generation thereafter it became harder and harder to replenish your team with the kind of players that you'd had there and had been bought now to do it once is is impressive to do it twice or three times as Sir Alex Ferguson did over a much longer period of time is incredibly impressive as it is for Bayern Munich for the reasons that that Steve and Rory you've articulated in terms of the the regeneration the rebuilding obviously Ajax are the the example setters you know lose delict de Jong no no problem Scherz Gravenberch, they just slot straight in. They seem to have multiple players that they are turning over and, and they are the club that has, they don't just have to refresh, they constantly have to rebuild because whenever they do anything particularly well, other clubs swoop in and take their most talented players. Yet 
that it doesn't seem to hold them back domestically as a 13-0 win at the weekend demonstrates. You know, they, they can have their entire team decimated, yet they, they able, they're able to regenerate quickly. Yeah, but with that 13-0, do you, do you think Ajax played well or did Venlo just play badly? <laughs> I think they played, they played VVV badly. <laughs> and did the, the, so, the co-commentator at the time give them enough credit? <laughs> That's the most important question. The, but the, so the thing with Ajax is, and in a way this makes it easier, I think, when you're one of those clubs that just has to keep on churning the players out. Because, so let's say that, that the Jon Licht generation stay at Ajax for eight years. Let's say they, they win a Champions League. Let's, you know, they obviously dominate the Dutch League. They, they win a Champions League. They become one of the great Ajax teams. They, stay, they all stay until they're 25. In that time, you've lost five years of players coming up behind them, five, six, seven years of players coming up behind them who've not been given first-team chances, who've therefore gone elsewhere, probably not developed to their full extent, so the transfer fees are lower, gone elsewhere. You maybe lose your reputation a bit for being able to churn out young talent so quickly. Maybe players stop coming to Ajax because they can't see a way into the team, so they start signing for Feyenoord or PSV or, or, or whatever, or Venlo, um, who, where they definitely get in the team. Um, so it makes it much harder from that point. Yeah, yeah. To, to rebuild. Whereas if you, if you are constantly on that, on that hamster wheel where you know that you, you have one good season and everyone's going to come in and take your best players, as, as will be the case this, you know, next summer, someone will go and sign Ryan Ravenberg. That's are you saying that Ajax are the Rochdale of Holland? I'm saying that Ajax are fraud. No, I'm saying that... Um, what, what, I think what, what, what's quite interesting, as you seem to be saying, is that they are almost actively encouraging selling on their players. They accept their position as a, yeah, an academy do. of football and, and it suits their model that these players play brilliantly in their first team for a couple of seasons and then they go. That's, I think what, Swans, just, that's, that's what Swans are doing, aren't they? They're, yeah. trying to, they're trying to get the balance of success on the pitch, but selling them, they know they have to do that. They're getting big money in for them, so they're selling them. But the, the, and I think it does suit Ajax. I think they, they freely accept that it's what they need to do. If they, they, if they can give them a, two or three years in the first team, get 60 million quid for them, that's brilliant for them. It keeps funding everything. But I, I think more, more, I guess, pertinently to, to teams like Barcelona, if you, it's, it's when you have that settled team for a period of time that you have a problem. That's when you have to rebuild. I guess because the paths get blocked, because the, the signings that you make don't get to bed in, because they don't get to express themselves fully, it becomes much harder to, to cope with life without the team that's brought you that success. Whereas with Ajax, they'd only had 18 months with Frankie Dion in the team. So they, they happen to have another one coming through anyway. It's, it's, not, it's probably a tougher existence, but it's an easier, pro, smoother process maybe. Whereas Manchester United give us, it feels like the ultimate cautionary tale in, in which they had that position of, of dominance at the top of the English game and an academy that was the, the envy of English football yet and had demonstrated, you know, demonstrated Alex Ferguson probably was a refresher rather than a rebuilder because it was that that stage where they would just each summer go and make the most expensive signing 20 25 million and just keep keep things ticking over brilliantly and then for, for whatever reason in the final three or four years of the Sir Alex Ferguson era stopped doing it as though on oh, no, no, because he's leaving we won't keep regenerating and and, and he clearly you know wasn't thinking then in the same ways about the future because it wasn't to be his future and so many so many threads came untied at the same time that they are still in a pickle seven or eight years later and that should be the cautionary tale for the very big clubs because unlike Barcelona now who are losing a lot of you know, once in a generation sort of players, seemingly almost at the same time. Manchester United were just a, a really well-oiled machine. And for whatever reason, just put the WD-40 down and decided they didn't need it anymore. 
So maybe we should have uh, called the uh, the program uh, Refresh rather than Rebuild, which is slightly undermining of all my work, but uh, never mind. Now, normally this would be time for Nevermind Jack and Ori What a Soccer Story, when Andy Hinchcliffe tells a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. But bearing in mind he's been so chastened by the, uh, the comments of a former Spurs uh, midfielder, um, he's going to remain silent for the next few moments because in his place, and thank you very much indeed, and you can, of course, send in any soccer stories that you have to setpiecemenu at gmail.com, we have a soccer story from Denmark, starring Chinch. This comes from Henrik Saltstein. Saltstein, apologies if I've got either one of those two wrong, Henrik. Well, you and would have got says, one of them wrong. At least one, at least 50% wrong, which is really my method of uh, broadcasting. A soccer story from Denmark, starring Chinch. Greetings from Copenhagen, says Henrik. I've been a keen <laughs> listener for long enough that I no longer have an involuntary urge to reach for the volume control of my podcasting device during your intro phase. This is my story as I remember it. Cast your beautiful minds and chinches back to approximately 1996. I was 14 years old, obsessed with all things football, nicotine highs and striking up just the right blend of Britpop and grunge on my disc man. It didn't have the anti-shock feature. <laughs> Balls, he says. Our school class was a very ordinary mid to upper middle class one and the usual more or less, though predominantly less, dramatic events unfolded during this coming of age era of our lives. It was during one such event this story takes place. We were at a house party at my classmate Jens's house. Country house with Blur will no doubt have been playing. Vodka OJs and Galliano shots will have been had, all in glorious haze of menthol cigarette smoke. Jens was kind of an annoying person, often bigging himself up, fibbing about things that he'd done, heard or seen, that sort of thing, in turn frequently casting him as the unknowing subject of light-hearted ridicule from others. One of the things about him that particularly irked me was his ongoing attempts at portraying himself as a devout football fan, and specifically a Liverpool fan, which I know he only did to endear himself to a couple of popular lads in the class above us. He was an indifferent, casual football fan, at best. He had a squirming, sycophantic nature, and I, being a true proto-football hipster with encyclopedic player knowledge and a bit of actual footballing talent of my own, was eager to call him out on his, to me, insufferable bluff. How did he get an invite to this party? He hates <laughs> Jens. <laughs> I think he was serving the canapes. <laughs> it's, it's a school party. You just want to be part of it. Back to the party, says Henrik, uh, almost, uh, yes, presciently, given that comment. It progressed as these things do. There will have been puking, will have been snogging and someone possibly multiple people will have been wearing a pair of boxy diesel jeans all part of the course but the highlight of my evening transpired when at some point i stepped into jens's teenage room and my eyes immediately fixed upon a poster on his wall it was a football poster yes the centerfold kind that you'd neatly remove from a match or shoot magazine almost certainly injuring your finger on a staple in the process the poster depicted a player in mid-stride with the ball at his feet an air of technical and athletic ability was almost palpably protruding from the wall an ooze of endeavor a player in full england kit with three lines sprawled across his chiseled chest it was breathtaking. Who was this phantom champion, I hear you ask? It was, of course, none other than the Chunchmeister General himself, dispatcher of deep crosses, devout <laughs> of the hot persuasion, protector of Primrose. Yes, friends, it was Andy. I can't believe I can't get a Google hit on him without typing his first name too. Hinchcliffe. I had to take a second to compose myself. My senses ambushed only moments earlier by the pure potency that in every way defied the one-dimensional medium of the poster. But then, of course, my brain, slightly buzzed from the experience and humbled by alcohol on top, started to make sense of it all. And once again, adrenaline shot through my body. Eureka! 
Liverpool fan with an Everton icon on his wall? I think not. Football fan? Obviously not knowing who Andy Hitchcliffe even played for. Not bloody likely. It was clear that Jens had hastily procured a football poster and hung it on his wall just prior to the party to fluff up the fantasy that he was, in fact, an avid football fan, but by using this particular poster had inadvertently shot himself in both feet simultaneously. Pathetic. I settled down and a pleasing peace fell upon me. I had been right all along, and at this point I felt completely at ease in the world. I didn't even need to confront Jens, mostly because I was so busy telling everyone else about it behind his back. So there you go. Thank you, Andy, for coming to the aid of the contentious p- that was 14-year-old me. Feel free to add and assist your stats with my blessings. In closing, please note that I have no interest in being considered for Buffalo Sea. But you are all very welcome to pursue a personal friendship with me. Best from the non-tweeting nation of Denmark, Henrik Saltstein-Stein. It, it reminds you know, me of that Alan Partridge scene. Do you know when he's his biggest fan and he opens yeah. the door in his house and it's full of Alan Partridge <laughs> pictures? I thought it was going to be something like a shrine. But actually, he's, he's used... He's used. Why would he... He could have picked anyone. Steve Guppy, Dave Unsworth, One Cat Wonders. Don't go for someone who's got seven cats because that shows you do know a little bit about the game. But I've just been used. I, I've been, I, I, I can, oh, but I, I feel mainly. so foolish. I, f- I feel used. I feel a bit grubby and dirty in a Danish type of way. Do you feel objectified because of the centrefold? Um, <laughs> I, I, why would I be a centrefold? Unless Great it question. was bad fullbacks monthly, then I'd be in there every week, wouldn't I? But why the hell? I can't, there's not many things that I, you know, you sign these, these, I, I say football fans slash nutters come and get you to sign, you know, these things, these cards and everything. And there's very few. There are regular ones. There's one when I'm wearing like an orange shirt or Wednesday shirt, but that wasn't a set. That wasn't a center full pull out. You know, I'm not Pamela Anderson. Why the, why would I be? Why would I be in the middle of a magazine? The most important part of a magazine, which it is, isn't it? Why would I be in there? But I, I don't, I, it's the English, English, English. He might have been an England fan. He might have been an England fan, not an Everton or Liverpool. It might have been the England thing, seeing me in the in the white of England just just blew Jens's tiny mind. He might just have liked people doing their jobs well, Chinch. He might have just been an, an admirer. Again, why me? Steady performers. Go for Stuart Pearce if that's the case. Why no, go up for and me? down, Pearce. Up and down. Maybe just like steady, quiet efficiency. Is Jens now the supervisor on a sort of factory production line? He just he, he admires things ticking along efficiently. I, the, the only way that this story will make me happier is if Jens is also a listener, and we get a, a we a need to follow the, yeah we need yeah, to we follow need to this up and find out the real reason. If it was just to say, well, I've just got found a magazine. He was the guy in the middle of it. I'll stick it on the wall. If that's the reason, fine. But Jens, you've made me look like a fool. You've made me, and I feel I I just feel soiled. In a good way. To be fair to you. Not the worst way. Growing up, I supported Name Redacted, as everybody knows. But I remember (laughs) I remember asking They were particularly big in the eighties, weren't they? Oh, Name Redacted had such a (laughs) such a they just haven't rebuilt, they haven't they haven't freshened things up, have they? They've gone nowhere. As long as they've (laughs) got trophies in that cabinet, Name Redacted will always be close to my heart. I would name redacted FC. Um but I remember in, at Christmas 1996 asking for and receiving a Mark Bosnich Aston Villa goalkeeper's top because Ooh. I really like Mark Bosnich. So I would say that it is possible, this was before his drug shame, uh, I would say that it's possible to support one football team and admire a player from another. You know that the class of 92 have done what they've done with Salford City. Can't we create name redacted FC and take them all the way through to the Premier League? I'm sure we could. How hard can it be? We are not as rich as the class of 92. 
Uh, Henrik, thank you very much uh, for your email. If you have a soccer story, uh, send it. Indeed, any correspondence to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We very much appreciate all your efforts, but if you could make one extra effort to try and find out where Jens is now, what he's doing, and indeed the reasons behind that picture up on the wall, that would be something that we'd appreciate very much. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy, and Stephen, and you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. We need a hashtag. Hashtag find Jens. <laughs> So this, like, where's Wally, but where's Jens? I'm tempted to pitch this as a sort of Scandi Noir documentary. <laughs> yeah. Is there does, any any other kind of Doesn't someone have to Scandi? die though for that? Doesn't someone have to die? Is well, like a, who, a who knows murder? what's happened to who knows what's happened to Jens? Either that party ended in murder, like as I understand all parties in Scandinavia do, or he's outside your house right now. As, really? as long, look, if we're going to do this, as long as we don't have to drive over that flipping bridge between Copenhagen and Malmo. Oh, you don't want to be driving over that bridge. It's nothing but trouble, that bridge. We can't afford to go to Copenhagen. It's way too expensive. <laughs>